You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, let's jump into a Bible study. The ushers are in the aisles. They're going to pass out Bibles to you. You want to find your way to 1 Corinthians 15. And the title of the message is The Power of Jesus. Jesus is amazing. He is the most influential man by far that ever lived on the earth. Think about it. He transformed human history. More songs written about him, more books written about him, more poetry about him, more art about him. The most influential person by far in human history. And today, billions of people are gathering together in his name to worship him. Why? Because he is God in the flesh and he is our savior. And today we're going to be talking about the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus to save and to transform our lives. And if you have not made Jesus your Lord and your Savior, we're going to talk about that today. Uh, That's what we are all about here at the Mission Church. Uh, Being disciples of Jesus, being followers of Jesus. A disciple is just a a fancy name for a follower of Jesus. And uh, uh, we want to give you the opportunity today to, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I want to start before we jump in by asking you a question. Uh, What is the most important question that we could ever ask? The most important question we could ever ask. It's not how does Starbucks make their Frappuccino taste so good. Uh, That's not it. It's not how does In-N-Out Burger make their In-N-Out Burgers taste so good when there's only this much meat in them. I don't know how they do that. Uh, That's a miracle in itself. The most important question that could ever be asked, what is it? What is it? As you think for a moment, you'll realize as soon as I say it, you go, oh yeah, that's right. It's very simple, but it's very profound. The most important question that could ever be asked is what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Is there life after death? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Or... Is there just annihilation? Do we just cease to exist? What happens when you die? It's more than just a question about a philosophical thing. It's a question that actually has a radical impact, not just, ha- not just about in the future, has a radical impact about today, how we live our life today. If what happens when we die is we just cease to exist, then hey, Let us eat, drink, and be merry. Let us step on as many people as we can to get what we want because nothing else really matters. But if there is life after death, it changes everything and it changes what we're living for. It's interesting is that this question has been the chief question, has been the paramount question of humanity throughout all the ages. And it's very interesting to consider the fact that mankind in every culture, in every society, in every era or epoch of time has been asking this question. 
And that in itself is quite revealing. Somehow, instinctively, man knows that this life is not all that there is. Somehow, instinctively, we know that this life is not the end. And that's not my opinion. All of history proves this to be true. We look at the ancient Egyptians, and they built monumental pyramids, and they mummified their dead bodies. Why? Why? All because they believed in life after death. And they were trying to prepare, prepare for it. Interesting. Complex structures. A lot of money, time, and effort devoted. Why? Because they were pondering life after death. It's not just the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Greeks did the same thing. And the ancient uh, Persians and the Babylonians, all of them believed in life after death. No matter how far we go back, we can go back to the furthest uh, known civilization, uh, uh, the, the, the beginning of it all in the Fertile Crescent, and we look at the Sumerians, and the Sumerians, archaeological uh, digs would tell us, they believed in life after death, and they were pondering life after death. And it's interesting, it's actually bizarre that all people of every nationality of every culture, of every continent, of every era of time, have pondered life after death. And even more bizarre than that is the fact that we don't even like thinking about death and life after death. We're thinking about it, and we don't even want to think about it. That alone is very telling. As a matter of fact, oftentimes we go through great lengths not to think about it. And we try to stay busy with eating and drinking and going to the movies and doing this and doing that and activities, all trying to occupy ourselves. And even if you're an atheist and you try to deny it and you say, no, 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 I don't believe in life after death. Yeah, even when you put your head on your pillow, you're worried about life after death. You're thinking about it. Many try to suppress it. They pretend they don't believe in it. But deep inside, we're all asking, we're all wondering the most important question, what happens when I die? And I have a question for you. Why would that be? Why is it that throughout history, man has asked this question? Every age, why? Why? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. There was a man named Solomon. He was the wisest man on the earth. And God blessed him with incredible wealth. And he went on a pursuit to find the meaning of life. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, it was the first book in the Bible that I ever read. And it rocked my world. So much wisdom in it. Uh, and uh, I have a quote for you from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 on your screens. Let me hear you read this. I have seen the God-given tasks with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Uh, let's take a look at that. I've seen the God-given tasks with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Sons of men is us. What are those God-given tasks? 
What are they? Well, when you were a baby, it was playing. You just wanted to play. I've got a grandson named Owen, uh, almost nine months old, and he's scooting all over, and he loves wheels, man. He loves spinning wheels, and, he, and you know what? Grandpa can't wait to get that boy some more wheels, right? Loving it. And he's occupying himself with playing. Love it. Love it. We go from playing, and then we go, oh, friends, and we occupy ourselves with learning how to have friends and getting playmates and that kind of thing. And then we go from finding friends, and we occupy ourselves with learning, and, and uh, we, you know, we learn things, and then we grow a little bit more, and then we go to university, and we occupy ourselves with uh, getting a good education. And then we, at university, and we start occupying ourselves with, hey, I need a date, man. I need a spouse. And uh, we start dating and, and looking for a, a, a partner in life. And then we get out of college, we get our spouse, and we start looking for a career. And we start building our career, and we're looking for a career. And, and then we get the career, and then we start looking for a house. And we try to buy a house, but they go up a million dollars every week. And, <laughs> and we occupy ourselves with getting our house. And then we get our house, we go, oh, we want to get kids. And then we get kids, we want to get a dog for the kids. And then we get a dog, and, and we're raising kids. Then we go, oh my gosh, I want to get these kids out of my house. <laughs> we try to get them off and launched. And these are the God-given tasks which the sons of men are to be occupied. And can I tell you something? They are beautiful. They are beautiful. These are the good things that God has given us into our life. Ecclesiastes says these are our portion. It's what God has given to us. And God has given us great things to enjoy. And may I just share with you, whatever season you're in right now, can I tell you, hey, don't stress so much. Enjoy the season God has you in. Yeah, but I'm trying to make it. I need a spouse. I need a date. I need a job. I need a... Hey, relax, buckaroo, relax. Enjoy the season that you're in. God will bring you through this season, and these things are beautiful in his sight. I look back at the seasons of my life, and I say, Lord, you're so good. I remember meeting my wife at 18 years old. Oh, so much fun. And I remember dating and then, you know, getting married, and I was scared to death to get married, man. I'm like... And then we had kids, and, and I look back, and oh, if I could just have my kids young again. I thought, you know, diapers were going to last forever. And then just, but each season, just so beautiful. And I love the season I'm in now. And here's what God says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This is God's design for your life, and it's amazing. But look what else it says. He has also done what? Read it with me. Put eternity into man's heart. Wow. Uh, here we see something. God has put eternity in our heart. What does that mean? It means that God has given us an innate sense that there's more to life than this life. And we see this verse to be true in everyday life as we look back on history and we see every culture, every people group, etc. Uh, right? This is true. We know this to be true. God has put eternity into our hearts. The great Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, uh, philosopher uh, 
he was an amazing, uh, you know, uh, thinker. And uh, he asked the question as he got himself in trouble and was sentenced to death. And he uh, uh, had to drink, drink the hemlock, to the poison, to die. And one of his friends were with him. He drank the hemlock. And his friend asked him, will there be life after death? And the great Socrates said, I hope so, but no one can know for sure. Here is this great philosopher, and he has no sense if there is life after death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ answers Socrates' questions. It proves that life after death is a reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in human history. As I mentioned, it determined our calendar. Everything points to it. Everything in world history is either before him or after him. Why? Because his resurrection was the most important event in human history. And it proves several things. It proves that Jesus is who he said he was, God in the flesh. Jesus was not just a mere man. He was the God-man. God became a man and he dwelt among us. He is God in the flesh. Secondly, it proves that Jesus has power over death, over sin, and over the grave, just like he said. Jesus said these words, and I quote, No man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. I have the power to resurrect it. You have the power to resurrect your life? Yes, I do. And Jesus' death and resurrection proves that that was true. Jesus' resurrection proves that the teachings that he gave about heaven and about hell and about life after death are all accurate and can be trusted. Jesus' resurrection proves that our sin against God can be forgiven and that we can have a relationship with God and we too can have eternal life when we die. For Jesus said that it was for this very purpose that he came to go to a cross to forgive us of our sins and to give us eternal life. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important. There's a reason all of time uh, dates to, to that time. Uh, it, it has significant impact in our life. And the resurrection of Jesus also proves that this concept of eternity that God has put into our hearts, that he has placed into our hearts, is there for a good reason. Because life after death is a reality. And can I tell you something? You will live forever, one way or another. You will live for eternity, either with God, in a relationship with God, or separated from God. That is just the reality. And so uh, uh, some interesting things as we, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I uh, want to look at some things uh, that are going to show us the concrete evidence of Jesus' resurrection. The concrete evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, are you there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Put your finger on it. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have such a passionate love for us. That you would become a man. That you would go to a cross. 
And that you would die on that cross and be resurrected to show us that you have power over sin and death. Jesus, we thank you that you desire to forgive us of our sin against you and to bring us into a relationship with you. You went to the cross to defeat death and to forgive our sin. And so, Lord, help us to know you. Open our eyes right now as we read your word that we might see the incredible things that are in, in it. For, Lord, I know it is your desire to speak to us. Therefore, Lord, help us to open our ears and to open our heart that we might receive what you want to say to your church today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 15 is an unusual spot for an Easter message, uh, but it is that normally you go to the Gospels, but I thought it would be good to look at. Chapter 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, not just Jesus's, but our resurrection too. We're only going to cover Jesus's today, but if you want to read later on on your own, you can. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1, let's read. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. Paul says, I'm giving you the gospel once again, the gospel that I previously preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. What's that? Yeah, we stand on the foundation of the gospel. We don't stand on the foundation of our own ability, of our own good works, of our own effort to try to be good people. We don't stand on that because that is shifting sand. We mess up all the time. It's not a stable foundation. We stand on the gospel foundation, Jesus' righteousness that is perfect all the time and unshakable. That is a great foundation to build your life on. By which also we, we are saved, verse 2 says, if you hold fast to the word which was preached to you, unless you believed, how? In vain. In vain? Yeah, you can believe that Jesus died on the cross, but not make him the Lord of your life, not allow it to move your heart, not allow you to understand his great love for you and love him back, and your belief is in vain. And you think you're going to be right with God because, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm trying to do good. Yeah, that's, not, that's a bad foundation, and your belief is in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, I'm only giving you that which I received by personal experience. Paul, his name was Saul. He was the enemy of the gospel. What was he doing, you Bible scholars? What was he doing to the church? Persecuting it. What kind of persecution? Killing Christians. Yeah. And Jesus got a hold of him and said, hey, I want to use your life. I want to save you of your sin. And he says, I'm only giving to you that which I personally experienced, that what I personally received. What? What? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. If you have a pen, I want you to underline your Bible. It's good to underline your Bible. It's not blasphemy. You can underline your Bible. Underline the words according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. 
and that he rose again the third day, and there it is again. Say it with me. According, According to the scriptures. Underline that. And he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter, another name for Peter. And then by the 12, that's the 12 apostles, uh, the, the disciples. Verse 6. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. What's that? Uh, here Paul is saying Jesus' resurrection was not a private event. It was a public event. He appeared to masses. And uh, he says many of them are still here when he wrote this letter to the church. Many of them are still here. You can go talk to them. Some of them have died, but most of them are here, he says, uh, even to the present. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, and then again by all the apostles. Uh, when was that? Uh, at the ascension. Jesus uh, didn't just appear like haphazard. Jesus in his glorified body stayed on earth, not one day, not two days, not three days, 40 days he was on earth. And the last time the disciples saw him, when they were all gathered together on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus ascended into heaven. And they all looked up and just in awe, and an angel comes and says, guys, quit drooling. This same Jesus that you see ascending is going to come back in the exact same manner you just saw him leave powerful right that was the last time uh, they saw him uh, verse 8 then last of all he was seen by me also Paul says as one born out of due time for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God I was an enemy of Jesus. I hated Jesus. And I was killing Christians. And in his great love, he saved me of my sins and gave me purpose in life. Amazing. Amazing. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, what's he saying there? Uh, he's not just saying, well, I just am what I am. Whatever I am, it's just the way it is. Just, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying... I, I, wish I, I wish I had a different past. I can't believe he's using me now. And it's all by his grace that he's made me what I am today. I am so thankful. That's what he means when he says I am that I, you know, I, it's, it's who I am right now. And notice what he says. Uh, by Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean when he says, uh, I labored more abundantly than they all? Why did Paul work so hard? I mean, Paul was crazy, man. I mean, he, he was planting churches all over. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He worked hard. Why was he working so hard? Was he trying to earn his salvation? No. Why did he work so hard? Here's why. Because his life was touched by the love of God. Man, I was such a schmuck. I was such a self-righteous pig. I can't believe how 
uh, arrogant I was. And Lord, you loved me and saved me. And by your grace, I want to serve you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to live my life for you. I want you to know something. The cross of Jesus Christ shouts loudly. But it doesn't shout, do this, and then God will love you. The cross of Jesus Christ shouts out, God loves you tremendously. Now respond to his love. Respond to his love. I love watching God work in people's lives. When we begin to understand his great love for us, our life changes completely. And now life has brand new meaning. This is the work of Jesus Christ. It is amazing. And he tells the church, he says, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel. The gospel, yeah, the good news that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, that we might be brought into fellowship with God right now. Life now, life abundant, and life eternal with God. That is the gospel. And it is amazing. And he says, by this gospel, you are saved. Saved? Saved from what? I, I'm not, what am I saved from? Well, you're saved from a lot of things. You're saved from your sins. You're saved from your selfishness. You're saved from your ego and your arrogance and your pride and, and all the things that we do against God. We're saved from eternal separation from God. We're saved from the futility of this life. Like, uh, what am I living for, man? I, I want to get a house. I got that. I wanted to get business. I got that. Now what do I do? I mean, uh, think I'll go on vacation. Okay, well then what do I... No, there's futility in life and, and we're saved from that futility. Your life has so much purpose. You want to know another thing that you're saved from? You're saved from the inability to change. Saul's life was changed radically, not by his power, by the power of Jesus Christ. Title of the message, The Power of Jesus Christ. Jesus has the power to change your life. And he does it by moving on your heart. He does it by filling you with his Holy Spirit and gifting you to live a new life for him. It is amazing. I love watching it happen. He changed my life completely 32 years ago and I've never been the same. Uh, uh, and so here, these are the things that, that he does for us. And you say, man, that sounds good. That sounds nice and everything. And here I am in church on Easter. And yeah, okay, okay, all, all good. Well, uh, no, 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 it's more than that. Uh, believing in the gospel is not believing that Jesus died on the cross. That's not believing in the gospel. Believing in the gospel is best summarized by John 3.16. We all know it, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That whosoever believed. Believed what? What? Oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross. No, 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 no. That whosoever believed that God so loved you personally and individually that God would become a man and go to a cross and take the punishment of your sin because that's how much he wants to bring you into fellowship with him. And when you believe that, your heart only has one response. I want to know a God who loves me like that. And that is what brings salvation. 
I want you to come to that place today if you're not there. I want you to know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. I've never been loved like that. If you love me that way, I want to know you. I want to walk in your ways. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus, and that he became Paul, and that's what uh, happened to me, and that's what God wants to do in your life. And you say, okay, that's all good and stuff, but why should I believe? Why should I make Jesus Lord of my life? Paul gives us three reasons here that I want to go over with you. Number one, it's in verse three, because Jesus died for your sins. Nobody else loves you that much. You are a sinner. You are a selfish, snotty, prideful, arrogant, self-righteous, egotistical, narcissistic, do I go on? <laughs> That's us. We sin all the time, man. We cut people off on the freeway. We lie to get what we want. Well, and Jesus died for all of your sins. Jesus did not die because of the Jews persecuted him. Jesus didn't die because of Roman persecution. Jesus didn't die because of bad luck. Jesus died on a cross on purpose. It was intentional to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin. That was why he came to this earth. That is why God became a man, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. And for that reason, we ought to make him the Lord of our life. The Bible makes it really clear. Jesus made it really clear that he was doing this to pay for our sins. 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, uh, Isaiah wrote of this, the Messiah's ministry. And look what he says, Isaiah 53, uh, on your screens. Let me hear you read this. He, that's Jesus, was wounded. Uh, in Hebrew, the word wound, wounded is actually pierced. Uh, Jesus was pierced on the cross. Let's read it together. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Here we see it's all for us. He went to the cross because of our transgressions, because of our iniquities, because of our sin, because of our lust, because of our greed, because of our arrogance. We have, uh, we have a ton of sin, and the chastisement for our sin was on Jesus, and it brought peace to us. And by his stripes, by his punishment, we are healed. Let's go on the rest of the verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's that? Every one of us have turned? Turned from what? Turned from doing what is loving. Turned from doing what is selfless. Turn from doing what is just. Turn from holiness. Turn from what is right. And we have turned from that and done it our own way. We haven't put God first in our life. We've gone out drinking. We've had radical immorality. We've taken drugs. We've had abortions. We've All of us have turned from God's path and we're always living for ourselves. We cut people off. We get angry. We tell them off. 
Why? Because we've turned from God's path and we've gone on our selfish path. And look at this. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Oh my goodness. Why should we make Jesus the Lord of, my li- Lord of our lives? Here's why. Because nobody anywhere is going to love you that much. And when someone loves you that much, to do that for you, man, you ought to listen to them. I think they have good plans for your life. I want you to know the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They're not tasks like rules you got to follow and he's just waiting to bust you. No, 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 no. The, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It is instruction. It is the way to have an amazing life. And the moment that you come from that deception when you realize, oh, no, no, God's word is actually amazing. It's actually really insightful. It's not a, a, a rule book to bust me. It's a guide to instruct me. Oh, my gosh, everything changes. And when we mess up, no problem. We've got a Savior. He died on the cross. Uh, Every sin I ever committed on his shoulders. How amazing. How amazing. I want you to know, every sin that you ever committed is going to be punished. Why? Because God is a just God. And God is holy. And a just and holy God cannot just pardon sin. That would be an unjust God. You can't just wink at it. You pee in the bed? No problem. We'll pretend it didn't happen. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. A just God judges sin. And every sin you commit will be judged and will be punished. And you decide where. It can either be punished on Jesus' back on the cross. Or you can take it full strength. The punishment of God's wrath on your back because you rejected his offering the choice is ours God does not make us I want you to know all humans all 7 billion of us all of us fall in only one of two categories you either have your sin on your own shoulders and you'll be punished for it or you can put your sin on Jesus' shoulders and you can be saved. There are only two categories and everyone is in that one. Which one are you in? Just like there is only two sexes, male or female, there are only two categories. Your sin is on your back or the sin is on Jesus' back. You decide. You decide. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I want you to know something. The Bible makes it very clear. There are not many paths to God. There is one. There is only one. Why? Because your sin is either on your back or on Jesus' back. Nobody else loved you enough to take your sin. Nobody else was capable of doing it. He's the only one. And Jesus made that very clear. He said, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one can come to the Father. No one can have a relationship with God apart from me. Over and over the Bible teaches this. Uh, 1 Timothy There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. No other way you can come to God. You can't do it through Mary. I'm not against Catholicism, but you can't come to God through Mary. 
You can't come to God through good works. You can't come to God through self-effort. Your sin is either on your shoulders or it's on Jesus' shoulders. You decide. There is no other option. It says that Jesus died in verse 3. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus died. I want you to know he died for our sin. He did not swoon and resuscitate as some teach. There's a group called Christian Scientists. It's the biggest misnomer in the world. They're not Christian and they're not scientists, right? <laughs> Crazy. What a lie. And they say Jesus didn't die on the cross. He swooned. He resuscitated. No. No. Islam, by the way, Jesus didn't die on the cross. As he was going to the cross, God rescued him and gave him a, a clone, a, a, someone who took his place, and a criminal, and that, one, that person went to the cross and Jesus went free. Yeah, not all religions teach the same thing. We're not worshiping the same God, not in a long way. Uh, there is one way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and there I am the life. Jesus died uh, for our sin. He didn't swoon, he didn't recover, he was severely beaten. He was scourged with a, a, a whip and had a cat of nine tails on the end. We talked about it in our Good Friday service. The skin on his back completely removed. The muscle completely destroyed, ripped into shreds. Uh, he was just almost completely bled out. It's amazing he lived through it. He was then put on a cross. Spikes were put through his hands. Spikes were put through his feet. He did it all willingly for you. And then he died and a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side. Blood and water poured out. The pericardial sac around his heart completely ruptured with a spear. Jesus died. And he did it for our sins. He was buried the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, secured the area, put a squadron of soldiers around it, put a, a government seal on the tomb, put soldiers guarding it, so that if that seal was even as much as tampered with, you would be killed. Jesus did all this to pay the price of our sins. And we ought to make him the Lord of our life. Because that is incredible love. He did all of this so we could have a relationship with God and an eternal life with him. And we should make him the Lord of our life for that reason. The second reason we should make him Lord of our life, Paul tells us here, is because his life, his death, and his resurrection were foretold in the scriptures. I had you underline these words according to the scripture. Here's what that doesn't mean. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible tells a story that Jesus died and went to the cross. Uh, that's according to the scripture. It was written in the... No, 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 that's not what that means. What that is saying is that before Jesus ever came to this earth, his life, his death, and his resurrection were foretold hundreds of years in advance, centuries in advance, thousands of years in advance. As a matter of fact, they were told, it was prophesied, it was foretold from the beginning of time crazy staggering amazing to consider Jesus' death was planned from eternity past 
The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That doesn't mean that he went to the cross before the foundation of the earth. It means it was planned out long before God ever made the earth and made man. God knew that we would be sinful and he made a provision for our sin. And I want you to know something. This is remarkable. The entire Old Testament points towards a Messiah, points towards Jesus. The whole Bible is about him. Every story in the Bible is about him. And the Bible says that over and over and over again. The Bible is about Jesus. Psalm 40 is a psalm uh, written as in first person from Jesus, from Jesus' perspective. I already read to you Isaiah 53, right? Written 700 years before Jesus. And yet written in such detail that you would think it was written after the fact. I would encourage you, read Isaiah 53 on your own. And you would read it and you'd say, there's no way this was written 700 years before Jesus. No way. It was written after Jesus. And there's liberal scholars who say that. But you want to know something amazing? In our lifetime, an archaeological discovery was found. Do you know what it was? It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were thousands of parchments of ancient scripture. The biggest scroll in the thousands of scrolls that were found, the biggest scroll, do you know what it was? The book of Isaiah, the entire book. It was a 24-foot scroll. I've seen it with my own eyes personally when I went to Israel. A 24-foot scroll, and guess what it has? The entire book of Isaiah. And that scroll dates... 200 years before Jesus. The book of Isaiah was 700 years. That's a copy of the book of Isaiah, 200 years before Jesus. What am I getting at? The whole book of the Bible is about Jesus. God foretold all these things from the beginning of time. That's what he was doing. Here, Psalm 40 on your screens. Uh, this is Jesus, first person speaking in the Old Testament. Uh, read it with me. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Stop there a second. What? Yes, you did. You said you want sacrifice offerings. You want burn offerings. You want sin offerings. God said you have to slaughter animals, confess your sins on that animal, and symbolically your sin would be transferred on that animal. Then that animal would die for the sin in your place. God, you did require that. What do you mean sacrifice and offerings you did not require? Well, let's look what he says. Then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. In the volume of the book? What book? The Bible. The volume of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all about Jesus. Let's go on. I delight to do your will, oh my God. And your law is written on my heart. That's the Messiah speaking. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness to the great congregation. Good news of righteousness, that's the gospel that I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to take the penalty of your sin. I'm going to give you forgiveness, divine forgiveness, and eternal life is a free gift. Wow, there it is in Psalm 40. 
And you say, well, what do you mean sacrifice and offering you did not desire? You ordered it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I never wanted it. I just wanted to show you what I was going to do through the Messiah. Every one of those lambs was just a picture of what God was going to do through the Messiah. I don't like animal sacrifices. I was trying to show you a picture. I'm going to become a man and I'm going to offer myself for you on the cross. Amazing. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And you want to know something amazing? This makes the difficult passages in the Bible, the difficult passages in the Old Testament, crystal clear and brilliantly meaningful. The moment that you understand that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And you say, what do you mean? Let me give you an example. The story of Jonah. Oh, please, don't insult my intelligence. You want me to think that some well swallows Jonah and then he's barfed up and then everything's okay. You expect me to believe that garbage. Yeah, well, when you know that the whole Bible is about Jesus, it becomes brilliantly meaningful and significant. You see, Jonah was a foreshadow of Jesus. And Jesus was in the grave how long? Three days. And Jonah was dead symbolically in a whale for how long? Three days. And when he's barfed up, he's resurrected. Guess where he goes? He goes and preaches to the Ninevites. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And the whole nation gets saved. A picture of Jesus. That's exactly what happened. He died on the cross and all the Gentiles got saved. This is the Bible and it becomes alive once we know it's about Jesus. We read stories of Abraham and Isaac and we say, are you kidding me? What kind of God would say, Abraham, offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. If that's God, I don't want to know him. And I say, I agree with you. But then I learn it's a picture of Jesus. And I see his heart in it, and it begins to make sense. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love passionately, and offer him on a mountain that I will show you. Sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham (gasps) gasps with horror. And he takes how long a journey? A three-day journey from where he is to the mountain that God would show him. And in the father's eyes, in Abraham's eyes, his son is as good as dead because he knows why he's going there. And he takes Isaac. He's a man. He's fully grown. And he takes him up to the, altar, to the, to the mountain that God shows him. And he says, Father, here's the wood for the sacrifice. Here's the knife for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham answers, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Prophetic, prophetic words come out of Abraham's mouth. God will provide himself a sacrifice. And there on Mount Moriah, Abraham goes to offer his son. Mount Moriah just so happens to be the exact same mountain where Jesus was crucified. The very spot. And Abraham goes to offer his son to sacrifice him. And God says, stop. 
and he spares him. And he provides an animal that is caught in the thicket by the horns in, the wheat, in, a, in a bush and, and he sacrifices that animal. And here's the story. Uh, God hates human sacrifice. He would never allow it. He was showing a picture. I, uh, uh, this father didn't have to give his son, but there's another father who will give his son on this very spot. And he'll, he'll resurrect after three days. It was a picture of Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. All the Old Testament sacrifices were pictures of Jesus. When the, when the children of Israel uh, left Egypt, remember they were in bondage in Egypt. You remember that? When they left Egypt, how did they leave? They left on Passover. What did they do? They had to believe something. This was the first Passover lamb ever given. They would confess their sins on this animal and they would put the blood over the door of their house. They were to put it across the top of the door and down the two lintels, the two doorposts. That would make two crosses. And in the morning, they were set free. Egypt is a picture of the world, the sinful world. Uh, slavery is a picture of our bondage to sin. And they were delivered from the bondage of sin and from the world and led into a promised land by the Lamb's blood on the cross. Amazing. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And why should we make him Lord? Well, because the whole all history foretells him. And let me tell you something. When for thousands of years, God says something is going to happen, and then when Jesus comes, he says it's going to happen, and he foretells, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified by the Romans, I'm going to rise from the, great, the, the dead on the third day, and it all happens exactly as he said. You might want to worship that person. They're, not a, they're, they're God, right? You might want to make him the Lord of your life. I think he has good plans for you and knows a little bit more than you do. The third reason we should make Jesus Lord tells us because he was risen from the dead according to the scripture. Or in other words, because he's alive. He's a living savior. How did he rise from the dead? How does anyone rise from the dead? That's not possible. Here's how. He, death could not hold him because he was God in a human body. He has power over death. Jesus is alive and he has power over death. Death cannot hold him. Physical death and spiritual death, he has power over both. And he can give life to whoever he wants. Can I tell you something? Uh, grasp this. Tune in. Really take this in. Physical death is just a servant of God. Did you know that? And it was instituted, it became a servant of God in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell. Why? Because Adam and Eve left God, they now possess a sin nature, a selfish nature, a greedy nature, all the things that I already went on earlier about, and you know you have it. Man, you'll yell at somebody, you'll scream at somebody. Why? Because you have a sin nature, it's called your flesh, and I do too. And I don't want to live forever in this flesh. And death is the servant that God made after man sinned to bring us from a sinful body into a sinless body. We are going to get glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, just like Jesus did. And they are going to be sinless. Right now, I try to love 
in my new body, I will be love. Right now, I try to be good. In my new body, I will be good. Right now, I try to be selfless. In my new body, I will be selfless. And even death is a servant of Jesus. Amazing. As I already mentioned, the religious leaders were so worried that Jesus was going to re resurrect that they, put, they got Pilate to put Roman guards and a seal and everything else. You even tampered with that seal and you were killed. Nevertheless, the seal was broken, the stone was rolled away, and there was nobody to arrest. The only thing that was left inside that tomb were some grave clothes. Amazing. Amazing. This is Jesus. And he is worthy to be praised. There is concrete evidence of his resurrection. Uh, the, the passage goes on and it talks about all those who saw him. It talks about Peter. Peter? Jesus appeared to Peter? Why Peter? Peter, what did Peter do right before, what, when Jesus was getting beaten, whipped, and scourged, and hit in the face? What did, what did Peter do? Denied him three times. And when Jesus resurrected, he couldn't wait to go see Peter. Why? Because he wanted to bust him? Because he wanted to judge him? Because he wanted to say, what the heck were you thinking, man, denying me? Why? Why? Why did Jesus want to go get, see Peter? Here's why. Because Peter was despairing of life. He felt like such a loser. He felt like he had messed up so bad. He knew how sinful he was. He knew how wretched he was. And he thought life has no purpose. I ought to just throw in the towel. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to come to Peter. I want to show him grace and mercy and forgiveness. Let me ask you something. Have you ever bought a really expensive gift for somebody? I mean like really expensive. Like lavishly expensive. Maybe a wedding ring, you know? And you get down and you grovel. Oh, please, 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 will you? Please. <laughs> what do you want? When you offer that gift, what do you want? You want, oh, I can't wait to see them open it. I can't wait to see them receive. This was an expensive gift. I want them to know how much I love them. I hope it touches their heart. I hope they understand all that I paid for this, all that I did to bring. I put a lot of thought into this. Here it is. And you want to watch them open it. And that's why Jesus appeared to Peter. Peter, I paid a high price for your redemption, man. I can't wait to give it to you. I can't wait to give you grace and mercy and forgiveness and joy and purpose in life and to let you know that I still have a plan for you. We're still friends. I want to work with you. I, I want to use you in life. Oh, man, let's go. My forgiveness to you. Oh, here's the gift, Peter. Will you enjoy it? Wow. And he lists all these different ones that he talked to. He appeared to James. Who is James? James was Jesus' brother. The resurrected Jesus appeared to James. James wasn't one of the disciples. James wasn't even a believer. As a matter of fact, James hated Jesus' ministry and mocked it. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus being the Messiah. Why? He grew up with Jesus. He thought, how can he be God? No way. I wrestled him. I did spit wads on him, right? We played. Messiah. What's wrong with you? Until 
He saw him beaten, crucified, and resurrected. And James repented. And Jesus comes to James and he says, Oh, you're forgiven. You're restored. Here's the, here's the gift I got for you. And James would write a book in the Bible. And you know what he would say in that book? Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Oh, I wish I would have listened to him more. And James becomes a pastor of the church in Jerusalem, a pillar in the church. Amazing. Why? Because this is what Jesus does to those who sin against him. He comes to them and says, look what I've purchased for you. Look what I've paid for. I want you to open it. I want you to receive it. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.